Good morning. Welcome to Real Time with IPELRA, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're speaking with senior law partner at Clark Baird Smith, Yvette Heinzelman, about safety-sensitive positions. But before we get into our subject, I want to let you know about next week's episode. After a long tenured career in the public sector as the City of Lake Forest HR Director, Deshay Kalmer is finally calling it quits. She's retiring. But before she leaves, she's going to join us and talk about HR as a strategic business partner in local government. So we look forward to that episode. But today we've got Yvette. Yvette, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Megan. I'm wonderful. Oh, well, we are so excited to have you on the show. Um, We've been looking for a way to get you to join us, and we finally have been able to make that happen. So thanks so much. I know you have presented um, many times with IPELRA, and you always present um, such meaningful topics. And and it came to our attention that frequently at times you'll reference safety-sensitive positions. So we thought, let's, let's have a vet on and get a little dig into that. What exactly a safety-sensitive position and, and what that means? What criteria exists that designate a position as safety-sensitive? Megan, uh, first and foremost, it's, it's a thrill to be here with you. I really appreciate uh, working with IPOWERA and all of its members. And uh, and so thank you for uh, inviting me to be on your podcast. Um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, Safety-sensitive <laughs> safety positions are, um, I don't know that you can identify all of them, although we can give some general criteria. You know, they're positions where, you know, either the individual that holds the position or the individuals that um, are working or interacting with that position um, it may be at risk uh, for some uh, with respect to an inherent danger. And when I say that, what I mean is, particularly in the public sector side, you know, police, uh, they carry weapons, they respond to uh, emergency situations, they engage with individuals who may be violent or have committed a crime, um, and individuals that are involved in, in, in situations that are not necessarily um, uh, safe. Same with fire. You know, they respond again to, to people that are in, a, in need of care and they need to have their um, uh, ability to critically think and assess a situation uh, without time for much delay. Uh, they need to respond to um, situations in buildings with with respires, all the, with, I'm sorry, fires, uh, although not so much in 2021. Um, but sometimes overlooked are, are also our friends in public works who operate some pretty heavy equipment, right? And they sometimes right. operate heavy equipment in uh, not so uh, convenient uh, situations, you know, when they have uh, sewer breaks uh, during major snowstorms when they're driving those snow plows, which, you know, I can't imagine how heavy they are and how difficult they are to uh, to operate, but those situations, they're operating equipment. Um, and, and so those, all those categories of employees, I would consider to be safety sensitive positions. Okay. Well, that's a great explanation. Thanks so much. And actually, you know, we always talk about pop culture and bring in some TV references occasionally, but as we're speaking, I'm reminded of that old, 
lotto commercial where the where the guy was running around in a hazmat suit and he was super protected and doesn't want to do so that's probably the extreme but what what do employers need to do to properly manage employees in safety sensitive positions short of putting them in those hazmat space suits and sending them out to the field so i guess we could wrap everybody up in um, plastic bubble wrap and that would keep them all right safe i've thought about it i have thought about it (laughs) right um but you know that only takes care of um you know the physical aspect of the job there's also a mental aspect of the job and that um you know includes your ability to exercise sound judgment right assess the situation so um and some of this is just obvious for police and fire and 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 public works you know they need to have their a game every day because they're in safety sensitive positions because they're operating equipment that could cause damage or could hurt people you know the physical as well as mental aspect of performing their job is really important more so than an individual that sits um, at a computer not that they don't need to have you know their cognitive capabilities you know and their egg bring their a game every day but if somebody makes a, a an entry, a, uh, you know, an, a false entry or a um, wrong entry on a um, a form or an address or something in a computer system, you know, you don't have a, an individual that's shot or you don't have an individual yeah. who, you know, has a medical uh, a result um, as a, a or consequence as a result of that error. Um, you don't have, you know, a snowplow driver hitting a pedestrian crossing the, the sidewalk. So the cognitive as well as the physical abilities are important for, for safety-sensitive positions. So in that regard, you know, employers have to have um, some best practices in order to make sure that they're managing these employees uh, appropriately. And, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important supervisors are. Uh, you know, they are promoted into those positions. Their job is to manage their employees. They know their employees better than anyone. And they need to know when those employees are having a good day and when they're having a bad day. And if that employee is having a bad day, that supervisor needs to be aware of it and, and maybe address it, particularly if it's a bad day upon a bad day upon a bad day. Um, so it's really important that, you know, our super, our supervisors are on top of their employees it's very important that our job descriptions are accurate. You know, we need to identify the fact that, you know, the ability to exercise sound judgment during um, extremely stressful situations, uh, that's, a, that's an important part of a job description. Um, physical capabilities, same thing. Um, but a job description is only as good as the, the employer's ability to enforce it and to make sure that people are living up to those capabilities and those uh, job tasks. Um, I I agree. And the job description is only as good as what you do with it too. Um, A a subject for another day, we'll probably get into talking about setting up those uh, parameters, the medical parameters. So when you identify a job as safety sensitive and require it to do X, Y, and Z tasks, how do you test for that? And how do you make sure employees coming into those positions and employees who already have those positions are fit to perform those tasks. And how are you evaluating that? So I think um, all of that goes into what constitutes a safety sensitive position. Right. I I agree wholeheartedly with you. And it's, 
uh, it's important to have the job description. It's important to have the supervisors evaluate their employees. And then it's important to, um, for the employer to hold employees accountable. So, for example, if you have somebody that has been, and I'll just give by way of example, if you have an individual that's diabetic, for example, and this has happened more times than I can count on both hands, um, and that individual, for whatever reason, is not managing their condition, right? And instead of the supervisor reporting the fact that they have an issue with an employee that's not managing their condition, they do things like allow the employee to sit in the kitchen while they um, drink some orange juice or allow the employee to take a nap during the day or allow the employee to ride as a passenger with another employee so they don't have to drive, so they don't have that risk. Um, that's just putting off the inevitable, and it's also creating a bigger problem for the employer when it ultimately discovers what has been going on because now it appears as though you can accommodate that employer employee by letting them sit in the kitchen when they need to drink orange juice or by allowing them to be a passenger and sending two employees to a particular call instead of one. And so it's very important that supervisors address these issues at the front end so that they don't become bigger, bigger problems on the backside. Yvette, how often do you see um, a situation where the potentially the supervisor may have missed some of the subtle signs, right? So maybe it's not super, super obvious, but maybe someone's struggling because they've got stuff going on at home. Um, and we've had, we've had previous episodes where we've talked a lot about mental health and, you know, that generally people are human, <laughs> we're all human. And so we, you know, compartmentalizing isn't always successful. And so if something stressful is going on at home, it's very likely that that's coming into the workplace. Um, so are there, you know, some examples of more subtle signs of, you know, performance issues or deficiencies that a supervisor could be looking for? Sure. So, you know, if you have an individual that, um, and some of these are just obvious, you know, coming to work disheveled, not being able to engage in a conversation, having, you know, sort of random or disjointed thought processes, or just not being their norm. And that's why it's so important for um, supervisors to know their employees and sort of to touch every, and I touch, I put in quotations, not literally touch them, but touch, touch base with them see how they're doing every day to see if they're a little off from what their norm is. Everybody has a different norm. No, and I agree with you, Christina, we are, we're human beings. We all have off days. And mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, for people listening to this, this is not about the gotcha for the employee. We can get rid of you. This no. is about if you, if you can tell that something is going on early on, you increase the likelihood that you can provide them with some assistance, talk them through a problem and have it become, you know, a level one or two problem versus a level eight, nine or 10 problem. So I can't emphasize enough to you how important it is to get on these situations at the front end because the odds are you're gonna be able to help them get through it and it doesn't affect their ability to retain their job. When you put that uh, perspective in with safety sensitive, the problem with the safety sensitive positions are the risk to the employer is that much greater because the function that the employee does 
um, risks their lives potentially or more likely than um, another position. So the risk to the employer is that much greater. Therefore, it's more important for the employer to be on top of individuals that hold these safety-sensitive positions so that they can get them the help, whatever help that may be, that they need. And I know we've talked on the show before, but in case our listeners haven't listened to some of those previous episodes, um, the supervisor's role isn't to be the doctor to diagnose what's going on or be a therapist. But if there's performance issues, or like you said, if you're identifying variations in the employee's behavior, um, it may just be as simple as as having a one-on-one conversation with that employee and just explaining that you're noticing some some changes in their performance or in their behavior at work, and you want to make sure that they're that everything's okay. Absolutely. I, I think a, a supervisor or an employer is far better off if we're approaching an employee with a level of kindness and empathy the first time at the, at, as soon as something is noticeable. Because let's face it, if it's noticeable, it's happened more than once. You know, odds are, you know, this is, there is something more than just the first instance. And so um, if you approach an individual with empathy, with respect to their situation, they're more likely to talk to you and maybe accept whatever assistance you're willing to provide. I'm not saying that we need to fix everybody's issues. What I am saying is that all of our employees are very important to us. And mm-hmm. with respect to police and fire, right, they, we spend a lot of time, money, and effort training individuals to perform those duties. And it's costly to an employer to, um, to lose an individual. And so, um, and not that they, you know, it's costly to an employer to lose, to lose any employee, not to mention the emotional uh, uh, loss that individuals face when somebody uh, in their department is, is removed from their position. So I think the sooner you, um, you can address the situation, the better off you are. And you minimize the risk of something bad happening, right? Because, right. you know, this is, we, we're all employers and we all want our operations to function smoothly. And, and so the sooner we can uh, address any potential situation, the better off we are. And so, you know, starting that conversation um, at, at a very low level is uh, is a is a uh, important factor. And you're right, supervisors are not um, in the role of diagnosing a problem; they're just in the role of identifying changes in an employee's behavior or job performance. And then, you know, like all other employment issues people can't handle this alone. You know, we talk, we work with each other, we talk through problems and by um, having that conversation, we reach conclusions that are, that provide us with the best path moving forward. So I'm certainly not saying that supervisors are supposed to fix the problem. Their job is to identify it. Then they come to human resources and we work through what the various options are, select the best approach, and then move forward. And that's ex- that's expert advice. I think too, um, it's always good to, to not make assumptions. I think when we see a change in someone's behavior, we can immediately go to, oh, X, Y, and Z. But sometimes it's something completely different. And that's why having a trained HR professional at the table to ask those questions and go through an interactive process with the individual is helpful in assessing the best course of action. Absolutely. 
And it's also good to have a third party that doesn't know the individual personally or mm-hmm. not as close as, as personally as the supervisor because, and that's why I say it's good to work with uh, you. Um, individuals should not make these decisions in a vacuum. You work with the HR, HR is bringing more of the objective perspective. The supervisor is bringing the personal connection to the behaviors. And then together we move forward, whether you have a, a labor attorney involved or not, you move forward and you make a, de- uh, a good decision. So, Yvette, we, we talked briefly in the beginning about um, categorizing uh, job descriptions and having specific criteria and job descriptions, identifying them as safety-sensitive positions, but should employers have specific policies related to safety-sensitive positions, something outside of other policies? So, um, I don't know whether you need policies, per se, uh, for limited to safety sensitive positions, I think uh, a best approach is to identify the job tasks uh, clearly in your job description, uh, which uh, identify the safety sensitive aspects of each job. Uh, and then I think uh, the best plan is to give uh, an employer the a most amount of latitude possible to address a situation that arises because while I said I can, you know, for the taking the diabetes example uh, that I used earlier, you know, I've had 10, to, 10 plus uh, situations like that in the last, I don't know, two, three years. Um, but each one of those situations is different. And so the policy has to be that employees need to come to work capable of performing their job duties. Uh, however, you know, to the extent that there are safety sensitive aspects to uh, a particular job, that's going to give the employer all the more latitude to address um, uh, the situation at hand. And going back to that diabetes example, it may not be a problem for a receptionist to have a hypoglycemic episode during the day, right? Mm-hmm. If, they, if they're not able to answer the phone, if they're not in, able to get on the computer, if they're not able to inter- engage with uh, uh, the public that walks into the um, to the city hall, you know, is it a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. But is it the same problem as an officer that is involved in a critical incident with a barricaded subject and he's got a you know a rifle and he's he's sitting behind you know whatever whatever right. barricade he is and all of a sudden he goes into a hypoglycemic episode? That's a completely different situation, right? than the receptionist. Right, and right. So, and an episode of Chicago PD, I believe. <laughs> you may be right. I may have missed that one. Um, but, but that would, so in that situation and in that example, the employer has a little more latitude in what they're going to require that police officer to do to come back to work than they are with respect mm-hmm. to this receptionist. And so, do you need fitness for duty policies? Absolutely. Do you need the ability to regulate or not regulate necessarily, but know what medications a police officer is taking? Probably to the extent that they affect his ability to do the essential functions of the job. Not quite as much as the uh, receptionist. You still have a, you still have a right to certain information, 
but the risk associated with those issues is much lower for the receptionist than it is for the police officer. And so, and I'm using police officer as sort of a general category for safety sensitive sure. positions. So the employer is going to have more latitude with respect to that safety sensitive position because there's more at risk to the public and to the individual should they be unable to perform their job duties. So it's really important. And anybody that's heard me speak knows that I will say a thousand times over in big, big capital letters underscored a thousand times, don't give away your rights. Right. And so I would say, and I, that again, you know, big bold letters underscored a thousand times, don't give away your rights. And so to the extent that you um, can manage and keep the right to send people for fitness for duties, because every employer has it, um, there is not a compromise with respect to that under the law unless you bargain them away. And so it's always been my position that employers should maintain their rights to ensure that they can keep employees um, safe and capable of doing their job. And that, again, comes under the OSHA general duty clause, that it's the employer's obligation to maintain a healthy, I, I'm sorry, a safe uh, environment for each individual employee and for the group as a whole. So, you know, from that perspective, I think that it's very important that employers don't give away the rights that they have. Yvette, you've mentioned um, implications for fitness for duty. Are there other implications for safety-sensitive jobs for when it comes to things like workman's compensation or uh, the ADA? How do, how do those uh, policies and, and how do that, those play into safety-sensitive positions? So, for example, for workers' compensation, I, um, I don't know that the safety-sensitive um, aspect uh, comes into play uh, other than um, the ability to accommodate and bring somebody back. And that goes along with the ADA. Uh, you know, in workers' comp, I, you know, we like to try and bring individuals back to light duty and then bring them back into full duty because there's a statistically significant, significant difference between individuals that stay at home and don't continue working versus the individuals that come back to light duty. The ones that come back to light duty are much more inclined to come back to full duty. So we, um, so it's, it's a good thing to try and bring individuals back to, for light duty. Uh, in safety-sensitive positions, that may be a little more limited, depending upon what the, um, the uh, injury is, what the limitations are, and what the job is. Uh, under the ADA, reasonable accommodation, same thing. It depends upon what the limitation is uh, for the individual versus uh, the job duty. So, for example, if as, as a result of uh, an injury, an individual has significant tremors, um, is that individual going to be able to be accommodated in their job uh, position? Well, they're probably going to be able to be accommodated in that the clerk typist position or the receptionist position but they may not be able to be accommodated in a firefighter uh, position. You know, they may not be able to manage providing medical care to an individual depending upon the level of the tremors, right? And so the ability to accommodate certain restrictions uh, may be a little more limited in safety-sensitive roles because 
the risk associated with what they're doing has to be taken into consideration, not not just whether or not there's a um, there's the capability of providing the accommodation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, lastly, as we look to kind of close up here today, are there any federal or, or state guidelines that employers should reference when managing safety sensitive positions? You know, I think when we talk, you know, when we use the term safety sensitive, I, I think a lot of that started with uh, the Department of Transportation when they uh, identified individuals and over the road commercial truck drivers um, that uh, uh, had to participate in random drug testing and limitations on their ability to go back to work uh, based upon the violations of an employer's drug testing policy. I think that's sort of where we started out with this sort of term of art. Um, so the Department of Transportation has, and, and something that we didn't really talk about today, but there's also you know limitations on the use of medications and, and drug testing and illegal drugs, which also factor into safety sensitive positions. Uh, the DOT has regulations for uh, the commercial drivers. They also regulate, you know, airplane pilots, um, uh, the uh, the transit uh, uh, employees, the pipeline employees, Coast Guard, railroad employees, uh, individuals like that who have to have um, regulations and participate in random drug testing. I, I think that um, the DOT regs for purposes of uh, the individuals that are driving our heavy equipment and are uh, subject to um, um, drug testing. And I, what come to mind for me is the public works employees are generally the public employees that have random testing in their, uh, in their collective bargaining agreements and or their job descriptions. So the, um, those federal guidelines are important to be aware of. The EEOC has guidance on uh, public safety and the latitude that employers are given for purposes of evaluating both um, accommodations and direct threats for individuals that hold safety sensitive positions. And again, uh, when I say employers are given a little more latitude, they need to, it, the ADA accounts for the fact that there is a risk associated with putting an individual back into a safety sensitive position for purposes of their job duties. And so again, all of this would tie back into um, the job description. In addition, I think the same is true for the Illinois, uh, uh, Illinois Human Rights Act. Uh, there was also uh, some regulations under OSHA. And, uh, and so we would, it would be um, good for employers to be aware of those uh, requirements so that uh, they are not exposing the public to a, an individual that cannot perform the essential functions of their job. I remember when uh, marijuana became, recreational marijuana became legal in Illinois uh, not too long ago. Um, there was, uh, everybody was kind of scrambling thinking, how does this impact um, people who do perform these sorts of jobs? You know, now that it's legal, is it legal for for them to, to have these jobs and to, to, you know, take advantage of this. And I know there was lots of training and there's lots of um, discussion on this topic. And, you know, we're not going to be able to answer everybody's legal questions and, and stuff on a 30-minute podcast. But I think one thing we always say in IPELRA is that 
training is the answer and education is the is the great equalizer. The more we know, the more we can address these topics, the more we can address these situations and be prepared to appropriately handle them. So that I want to thank you. Go Great ahead. point. Go I would, ahead. I just wanted to add that, you know, sometimes our, you know, we hear from our supervisors that they would love, you know, a, a how-to guide or um, some sort of roadmap to dealing with these issues. But in reality, like Yvette pointed out a few times, uh, no two situations are always, are going to be exactly the same. So um, IPELRA is a great resource. We try to provide lots of training, but the, the other resource that IPELRA provides is the network of individuals. And chances are some of your counterparts and other organizations or communities have dealt with something before uh, that may be similar or that may provide some insight into what you're dealing with. So you're not alone. Reach out to your counterparts, reach out to uh, for supervisors, reach out to your HR people as, as guides and resources within your organization. And then, of course, always check in with your labor council as things get um, potentially more complicated and complex to make sure that you are working within the parameters of, of the various different employment laws and labor laws and uh, the contracts and all of those things. I agree with both of you. I, I can't tell you how important it is to not do this alone. And sometimes you just need to step mm -hmm. back, get somebody else's input and, and, and consider maybe a different perspective. And the answer becomes very clear. But, you know, since I've started practicing and I won't identify the date, um, it, you know, the, <laughs> the number of employment laws has probably multiplied by a hundred. Right. And so, you know, yeah. if, if you're trying to do this by yourself in an office without speaking to anyone, it's just it's destined um, for disaster. If, however, you know, you you talk through with somebody, I, I guarantee you you're going to get a better result and absolutely speak with your iPower counterparts, individuals that have gone through this. You're not alone because you may think that this is the only situation, the situation only happens to you, but it really doesn't. It happens to all of us and, and same or similar situations can have similar roadmaps to get to an appropriate result. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, Yvette, well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or they'd like perhaps to retain your services or, or have you um, speak on this topic, how can you be reached? I, I certainly can be reached at, um, at Clark Baird Smith. My uh, email address is first initial last name, yheinzelman at cbslawyers.com. Or anyone can call me uh, at 847-971-0398. I'd be happy to chat through a situation and help uh, however I can. And thank you very much for the opportunity to speak bo to both of you today. It was our pleasure. And, and if our listeners have anything they want to say, you know we're here. We're listening. Send us a recorded voice message. We can play on the show or join us on a future podcast. Give us your feedback. We want to know what subjects you're interested in hearing us talk about on the show. Connect with us through the website at www.ipelra.org and, of course, on Twitter at IPELRA. Support IPELRA by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals and local government. Join us next time as we discuss HR as a strategic business partner. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. And this has been Real Time with iPalra. Thanks so much for joining us.